1: Hey, it's Wes Kosova. We're taking a break to spend Memorial Day here in the U.S. with friends and family. So we wanted to share a team favorite episode you might have missed about the other members of our family. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow. Hey, Vicki, you have two sons and two dogs. So here's a question. Which of them is more expensive? The
2: dog's food is crazy expensive, but the boys are growing, so I feed them sometimes too.
1: (laughs) (laughs) From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how much are you spending on your pet? When the conversation turns to pets, and at some point it just always does, after the phones come out and the photos are passed around. My
2: animals and
1: send them to you all. Oh my God, how
2: cute.
1: It's only a matter of time before it's all about how much the care and upkeep of dogs and cats costs. That's exactly what happened when the Big Take crew was putting together this episode.
2: My cat son, Sylvie, costs a lot when it comes to diet. He's on a prescription diet because he is allergic to everything. And that food went up $14 over the last 10 months or so. So it used to be 77 Now it's $91.
1: $91, Catherine, for food?
2: Yep. And that might sound bad already. But something to know about Sylvie is that he, of course, hates his prescription food. So I spend about $20 a month extra buying things to sort of doctor up the bowl, like treats, beef toppings. We're trying a new beef broth this week. Funnily
3: enough, Catherine, my cat, too, has a broth obsession. So Wednesday is my cat. She's a Persian cat. She has the classic grumpy flat face. Basically, I have to give her this thing called lysine. It's like an immune support so, what I do is I take a little scoop of lysine and I mix it into the broth. And the broths are not cheap. It's a liquid and it has solids. She doesn't eat the solids. And I know that's what keeps the cost up. Wow. I lucked out. I have a three legged
4: rescue dog named Iggy. She's a little angel. She's not picky at all food-wise. She'll eat whatever you put in front of her. But that has also gotten us into trouble because somehow, three-legged or not, she managed to get up on the counter while we were gone one day. And I had just bought a bag of currants to try on my oatmeal. I was excited. I was like, dried fruit on the oatmeal? Look at me go. And we come back home from dinner, my partner and I, and lo and behold, there are currants spread across the couch She ate the whole bag. It's roughly a cup. First, we're like, oh, ha-ha, how quirky. Then we call. There's apparently a pet poison hotline. So right there, 75, right off the bat. So we get on the phone, and the person goes, okay, there are two options here. One, totally harmless, totally fine. Option two, three of them will poison her. So then we had to go to the emergency vet which up front, I think I had to put something like $2,500 on my card for them to even do anything. It luckily ended up only being 1300 So a bargain.
2: Yeah, I will say I've also had my poor pup Astro who ate something. We still don't know what it was, but yeah, trip to the emergency vet and, you know, stomach x-rays and everything out the gate. It was a good 1500 at least. And I did have pet insurance, so that covered some of it, but that pet insurance does not cover the $300 a year bill just to get a wellness check. When I adopted my dog Astro, it was required by the adoption agency that I get pet insurance for him. So it started off 35 bucks a month, but then he had that whole issue where he ate something, we weren't sure what it was. After that, the monthly premium went way up, and it's almost double. So it's great if you don't need
1: it. Okay, what's the strangest pet expense you've come across?
2: My best
3: friend has an exotic short hair cat named Pistachio Muffin. And he, much like my beloved Persian Wednesday, has a flat face. One vet said that he had never seen nostrils on a cat so small. And those small nostrils led to breathing issues, respiratory issues, and it was just a bad time for a little pistachio. So the vet suggested you can get the nostrils widened. There are surgeons that will do this.
1: A cat nose job?
3: a cat nose job. Of course, the only surgeon was on the Upper East Side. And for this nostril widening surgery, it was $1,200.
1: So given how much all of your dogs and cats are draining your bank accounts, do you have any regrets? Would you give them up? Would you not get them if you knew what you were in for? Never.
2: They bring me so much joy. It's worth every
3: cent. I used to think that the amount of money people spent on their pets was absurd until I adopted Wednesday. And now I will gladly go into massive debt to keep her happy and healthy.
4: Before adopting Iggy, my partner and I sat down and had a budgeting conversation. And we kind of thought we had an idea of what it would be and what our backup plan was, should the worst happen, and then the currents happened. And we were like, oh, now we get it. But no, wouldn't give her up would keep her in a heartbeat i will just never buy currents again
2: i'd die for sylvie hands down
1: reporters naka katan and brendan case wondered if each of us is spending so much on our pet how much are we all spending they set out to put a number on what they call the
5: global pet economy so the worldwide pet economy right now is well north of $300 billion. And the next seven years are gonna be a big story about growth. Bloomberg Intelligence is predicting that that number is gonna get up to about half a trillion dollars, very close to $500 billion. And you've got the US that is accounting for not quite half, but almost half of the total. But you've also got growth in Europe and you've got the fastest growth in the rest of the world, particularly emerging markets. And so you've got a global trend with certainly more pets because of the pandemic, and especially in the U.S., there was an uptick in the population. And for each pet, you've got rising average spending because of this new collection of services, healthcare, and premium products that pet owners can buy now.
1: I remember when I was a kid, of course, people had pets, but they weren't. Taking them to the doctor for MRIs and doing a lot of these really intensive medical treatments, buying them fancy gourmet food. When did all this start to become a really big thing?
6: It's been growing rapidly for a long time. It was recession proof during 2007, eight, and nine. It was continuing to grow through that. But then I think maybe in the last 10 or 13 years is when. The drug companies that we interviewed started to notice this is huge. We have this great anecdote from Zoetis, which is the largest pet healthcare company, saying that their animal livestock portion of their pet business used to be 64 percent and the rest was pets. And in the past 10 years, that has completely flipped to the exact opposite.
1: And why is that? Why are people now just spending more on their pets than they did before?
6: You just see pets becoming part of the household. They're treated as one of the family, more and more. Then you have the pandemic, where there was just a huge uptick in pet adoptions. And then add sort of the lifestyle of the youngest generations, Gen Z and millennials that are also kind of contributing to more spending. And they admit they're spending more on their pets than ever before, just you know, before maybe starting families.
5: That's a really big part of the story. You know, you get Gen Z, you get millennials, and statistically, they're starting families a little later. And if you look at the surveys, they're the ones who are out there saying much more than other generations that, you know, yes, pets are very much part of the family. They buy into the whole sort of trend towards humanization, and they are willing to spend pretty heavily on their cats and dogs and other pets. Brendan, you mentioned
1: earlier that in the U.S. especially, there was this uptick in people getting pets during the pandemic. How big an
5: increase was it? The increase in pet ownership was one of the big stories in the early stages of the pandemic. And what you end up with three years down the line is that Morgan Stanley estimates that there are about 5 million more pets in the U.S. as of the middle of last year compared with 2019 that's an increase of about 4%. So you've got a rising population of companion animals, but it's not just that. It's also rising spending on each pet. So to give you an idea of the numbers, the Labor Department calculates that household pet spending went up about 13% as of 2021 from 2019. That 13% increase is not quite twice the average rate of inflation during that period, but it's close. And so if you drill down into dollar terms, what you see is that according to Bloomberg Intelligence, it costs about $1,500 to own a dog. That's per year in the U.S. And it costs uh, close to $1,000 to own a cat.
6: So those numbers, maybe on average, they're right. But everyone we spoke with for this article and everyone I know (laughs) spends more than that. So, for example, we spoke with one woman, Susan Gentile. She's a public school teacher who spent about $8,000 or more on her dog, Elvis, because sadly he had a heart condition. She was spending on echocardiograms. She was spending on hyperbaric chambers. You know, she's spending a lot of money to keep her dog healthy. This is another part of what's really taking pet ownership into the next level you know the next big boom which is the cost of health care the cost of vet services the fact that a lot of the medicine innovation that you're seeing in the human health sector are transferring into the animal health sector
1: more with brendan and naka when we come back Naka, before the break, you were talking about how more and more expensive medical procedures for pets are becoming the norm now. What are some of these procedures that people are having done on their animals that they just didn't do in past years?
6: I mentioned echocardiograms. There are also a ton of innovative medicines that have just been approved for these sort of big pharma companies. They sort of have their roots in big pharma, and then some of them spun off and became just focused on pets. So you could be treated for osteoarthritis using monoclonal antibodies, which was used, for example, to fight COVID. And then there are top-line diabetes drugs that you can find now used for pets, and in the case that we spoke with, a woman whose dog had a heart condition, she was telling us that she used the same medication for her dog, Elvis, that her father took. So she would give half a pill to Elvis and her dad would take a full pill.
5: It's not just medicine, it's also a lot more scans, like the electrocardiogram that I was talking about. Um, another example is an MRI. One of the people we talked to said that, you know, time was maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago If you lived near a sort of a teaching hospital, veterinary medicine, then, yeah, you could probably get an MRI, but not many people did. Now, that's a service that you can essentially walk in and get. The downside is that it's going to set you back, you know, $2,000 or more.
1: What would have happened to a dog like Elvis five years ago, 10 years ago, Was there any kind of treatment like this, let alone the kind of diagnostics that are very common for pets these
5: days? You know, for a dog like Elvis and for a lot of pets out there, the sad answer is probably they would have died earlier. And I think that you have elements of some people being more willing to spend a lot on advanced treatments. You also have a situation where these advanced treatments are out there. And yes, the providers do want to you know, use the expensive equipment to provide the best service they can. If you talk with some vets, I think that one lesson you come away with is that they, you know, they do have the issue of affordability in mind. It's something that they struggle with as well. But the fact remains that there certainly are people out there, you know, pet owners who are demanding those services. And so you've got the veterinary medicine industry that is, you know, adjusting to provide them and and take advantage of a lot of the technology that they can bring to bear.
6: And there are lots of surveys about just how close families feel to their pets. Above 90% feel that their pets are part of their family or one of their children almost. Above 80%, 85% or so say they would spend any amount of money to care for their pets, no matter what. And I think that was one of the most surprising things you mentioned, Wes, is just how much people are willing to spend. And with the available services and diagnostics and drugs out there, they can do that now. And it's interesting what I also found. A lot of times people almost underestimate how much they've spent. And when you ask them to itemize it, it's a lot higher than they expected.
5: Yeah, well, you know, Elvis himself had a $900 electrocardiogram. An MRI goes for $2,000 or more, and that's according to a group called the Pet Fund that exists to try to help people pay for care that they can't afford on their own. And if you talk with them, they say that it used to be once in a blue moon, you would see a $10,000 price tag for total care of an animal having a serious health problem. That, we're told, is becoming increasingly common. And in fact, the people running the pet fund have seen bills that range as high as 20,000 or 30,000.
6: Right. We have in our story that largest insurance claim was at $50,000 for a dog that was run over in Brooklyn.
1: And you mentioned insurance, which is another big component in this, is that a lot of people, in order to pay for this or in anticipation of having an illness that could cost a lot of money, are buying insurance. How does that work? How does pet insurance work? So
6: there's, you know, an annual premium and then the deductibles and then the out-of-pocket. And we actually have Bloomberg Intelligence doing some of the math, coming up with an average number. So if a cancer treatment can cost $8,000 or $10,000. At the end of the year, the total expenses under insurance can be maybe $2,700. But there are a lot of people who do say that the premiums are very high. In Susan Gentile's case, she said that her dog was too old at the point where she wanted to get insurance, so it was too expensive. And in general, I think you know the entire market is about 3% of pets are insured. So that actually opens things up for huge growth in that sector.
5: So the thing about pet insurance is that you do want to go in with your eyes open. This is an industry that's bringing in about $2.6 billion in annual premiums right now. That's up from a billion dollars in 2017. But if you look at the numbers, you know, it really depends on the individual case, whether it's worth it. You know, the average for a dog, if you want accident and illness coverage is Almost $600. And there are some people out there who say, you know, better to take that money, set it aside for future care for the animal and just pay with cash. Others obviously are deciding that they do want the coverage, but it'll come with a pretty high deductible. And so they'll still have to pay out of pocket a fairly significant amount.
1: Are we already starting to see elective procedures for pets? You know, cosmetic surgery, things that aren't purely medical but are just done to, I don't know, make your dog look better?
5: Certainly there's a lot of gray area, first of all. And then there is the world of what you might call plastic surgery for animals. It's kind of a famous example, which are called nudicles, these are testicular implants for dogs that you can buy if you have your dog neutered, but you kind of want to have them keep the pre operation look. There's a market for this, okay, and a pretty good one, apparently. You know, this is a company that seems to be doing okay for itself. There's a famous example the actor Jake Gyllenhaal. He was on the tonight show and he said that he got a pair of nudicles for his German Shepherd. Maybe he should get nudicles. Uh, Do you uh, know what those are? I must no I can guess maybe, but I I They're what? prosthetic testicles. Anyway, long story short, he has nudicles.
6: This is not elective surgery, but it's in the realm of psychological costs. We found a lot of owners I spoke with put their pets on Doggy Prozac because They had behavioral issues, anxiety, a lot of anxiety, and neighbors filed complaints, you know, some pretty difficult experiences that pet owners say is not talked about a lot. And so they had to put their dogs on Prozac or put them into daycare training. And so those costs can rise to almost as much as, you know, a heart condition.
1: We'll be right back. Brendan, we've been talking about how pet ownership and the amount of money people spend on their pets are going up. But there's also the opposite happening, which is a lot more people, especially who got a pet during the pandemic, are trying to return them or finding new homes because they just can't keep up.
5: Yeah, you are starting to see that. And what you see in... The data, such as it is, because again, you know, the data here is not quite as clean as with human activities. But if you look at numbers compiled by a group called Shelter Animals Count, you're certainly seeing an uptick in most states in what are called pet surrenders compared with the early days of the pandemic. There's an important caveat there, though, which is that by and large, those numbers are lower than they were in 2019. And so it's not quite right yet, at least, to say that there's a bunch of people who ran out and got pets during the pandemic and now they just can't deal with them. Certainly that description fits the case of some people. For many others, you know, I think that they're, you know, at least compared with pre-pandemic levels, seem able to keep their pets at home and seem happy.
6: And I think actually that's a really clear sign that pet owners are willing to go very far to keep their pets, even if for whatever reason it was, they might want to rehome their pets. You might have the numbers taking up from the start of the pandemic, but we're still not at 2019 levels. You know, that trend toward humanization and doing whatever you can to make sure your pet is healthy and happy and stays with you, that I think will continue. And that's perhaps where this market will continue to head towards
5: the half trillion target. That's right. And in the short term, there is a bit of a question mark just from the economy. There's obviously a lot of economic uncertainty out there. And it is the case that when the economy worsens, there are more people who look to rehome their pets whether the economy will worsen to that extent, whether people will react with the same historical pattern, all that remains to be seen, but it's a big question mark as we go through the rest of this year.
6: We hear from the drug companies saying that costs spent on healthcare are sticky, right? They're very recession resilient. And so people would decide to lower their costs in some other area, a cheaper car or, you know, fewer clothes sooner than actually taking away spending on a pet.
1: As you're reporting on this booming industry that, as you describe, is only going to get bigger and bigger, what are you looking for? What are the trends down the road that you're keeping your eye on?
6: I'm interested in how human health is trickling down into pet health, especially because it takes a lot shorter to go through the approval process, FDA approval process, to get a new drug for a pet. And so eventually we might see innovation first hitting the pet market before the human market.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of research out there on dog aging for a number of reasons, one of which is that dogs have shorter lifespans. And so a human researcher can track multiple generations of dogs over the course of a career. There's something called the Dog Aging Project, which is based out of the University of Washington and Texas A&M University. It's got 44,000 dogs enrolled where, you know, the dog owners fill out questionnaires, keep track of their pet's health and behavior. The hope is that over time, they start to generate insights into how dogs age, which genes age the best. It's even conceivable that there could be some insights from that project coming into human health. And, you know, there's startups out there with plans to do something similar. You could see a number of so-called anti-aging drugs on the market within three, four years, potentially. So that's definitely one thing to watch. Another thing that I keep my eye on is whether the assumption that people will keep accepting higher prices, in fact, turns out to be right. There's a lot of money behind these industries, right? Like Mars Incorporated, the candy bar company, is one of the big investors in veterinary services. And the bet there is that humanization trend, rising incomes greater supply of pricier options for pet care. You know, the bet is that those will all combine and give this very robust annual average growth over the next five, seven, 10 years. But there's a lot that could go wrong too. You know, it could be that people, you know, just can't hack it, particularly in the middle or lower income levels. Could be that demand isn't quite where they're expecting it to be. But right now, the people putting money at risk here are definitely expecting these numbers to keep rising pretty quickly in terms of spending. Brendan and
1: Naka, I think it's important for our listeners to know your bias, dog or cat?
5: (laughs) Uh, Cat. My wife and my kids know that uh, more of a cat person. But we do have two cats and two dogs. Our house is a bit of a zoo, and we love them all.
1: And Naka?
6: I grew up with a dog, and it would have to be Dog. Again.
1: Naha <laughs> Tan, Brendan Case, thanks so much for coming on the show.
6: Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks to Rebecca Shasson, Katherine Fink, Sam Gebauer, and Vicki Bergolina for sharing their cat and dog stories. And thanks to you for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Rogolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producer is Rebecca Chasson. Our associate producer is Sam Gebauer. Hilda Garcia is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back on Monday with another Big Take. Have a great weekend.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state